Hi there. My name's Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. This episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which we are not holding public worship. The preached texts are included in the audio for this episode, but you can still find a link to them in the show notes or description. This Sunday, we're using the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. We'll be using the NRSV translation. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. We've had these uh, artificial palm branches for a while. The second or third year I was here at Emmanuel, I decided to order a few that we would then one day use, uh, mix in with the natural branches that we get most years. But I say most years because it was a decision I made for the worst sort of reason. I, uh, I missed the deadline <laughs> to order the natural ones that year. So, so we got by that year with artificial branches. And then, like I say, after that, we, we started mixing them in with the natural branches. We just use both. And then I even ordered a few more artificial ones besides that. So we have a, a large variety in, in styles and what have you. And, and they can really cover a lot of ground, even with just one order of the natural palms. And I don't think, at least before that second batch, I don't think most people noticed that they were artificial. In fact, the only comments I really heard was folks were surprised if they helped clean up to learn that they were fake. But even then, fake is a harsh word. It's not like they're imposters. They were just crafted instead of harvested. I'm fine with it. But nevertheless, someone, somewhere, would be offended. And I know that because of conversations I've had with several folks, not many, but a few, about the use of fake flowers on church altars and in church sanctuaries. 
Maybe I'm letting just a little bit too out for one morning because yes, often the flowers on our altar are artificial. Not always, but often. Now, if you didn't know that, if you weren't a member here, if maybe you've just never thought about it before, and now you are, you likely have a gut reaction as to which is better and whether artificial is acceptable. I mean, artificial flowers save time and money, but maybe you think saving time and money is the wrong sort of motivation to use when decorating an altar. Natural flowers smell and tend to look better, but then again, they also mean allergic reactions and sign-up sheets and week-to-week -week and using the refrigerators. It's it's involves more. Um, those flowers, these palm branches, they look close enough. They seem to get the job done, and yet some might intuit that there's reason not to do it that way. Our gut reaction may be that if it's an imitation, a substitution, that it's unacceptable. Because an imitation might somehow honor God less than the real thing would. Now, there may be something to that. <clears throat> it's not an intuition I have, but nevertheless, it's something to consider. But let's, let's, uh, let's back it up. We'll circle back to this idea by the end, but I, of course, brought up the palm leaves because it's Palm Sunday, and these are a tradition that go all the way back to Jesus' day. Another tradition like them is that Judean currency, the currency they'd use in Judea, had palm leaves on them. Palm leaves were a sign of peace on the one hand, sure, but they were also, in this case, a sign of defiance because most Roman currency had the images of rulers on them, particularly the emperor. But Jewish folks were not supposed to use currency with a human face on them. It'd be a, a graven image, like from the Ten Commandments. It'd be admitting that there's some kind of value to the image of the false god emperor, the false god Caesar's image. So at the very least, they would avoid using those coins for anything to do with the temple. Coins trading in the temple. If you remember your Bible, there's a connection here that springs up in Holy Week, at least in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, the money changers are the same sort that Jesus drove out of the temple this week. And they existed, they were there doing that job because... That way, Jewish folks who didn't live nearby could come, trade the coins from their faraway provinces with the rulers of those faraway provinces on them to get image-free coins and be able to buy sacrifices there and let them use those coins and not have to bring their own animals. The symbol of the palm leaf on the coin held all that, even though it wasn't a natural palm leaf. It didn't even have to pretend to be. Placing its image on the coin did the trick. Just the idea of it, the image of it, was enough. It made its statement. It made every financial exchange there a subtle act of defiance. We will not acknowledge the divinity of the emperor, no matter how many Roman soldiers you send our way, all in that one little image, one little thing like this. Symbolism like that, then, it's all over Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He's greeted by these huge crowds just like a king would be he rides on his steed as he triumphantly enters into the city and he gets it merely by saying the lord needs it that's enough to get him his uh his ride but it's not a battle stallion it's a, a meager animal 
Matthew talks about there being two here as he quotes the prophet who's using Hebrew poetry, which was fond of such repetition. We don't need to get lost in whether Matthew imagined him, imagines him straddling two animals or one at a time or what have you. Uh, the people shout at him, and in those shouts, we get the same dynamics at play. Hosanna in the highest. We've had this idea in our scholarship for a while that Hosanna was a, a command. Uh, a plea. They were pleading with Jesus and it meant save us or save us now. Hosanna is related to the Hebrew word for saving or savior after all. But more recent scholarship figures it may have been uh, more like it's like how it's used in the Psalms as a, an acclamation of praise. Uh, elevating Jesus to the position of savior like and comparing him to King David and the age, uh, excuse me and the angels. But you know, when they think of King David as Messiah and they think of the angels, it's often as God's army. That's not the kind of savior they're about to get. We've got some irony in their expectations versus what will come. Jesus isn't about to oust Pilate. He's not going to overthrow the empire. The way he's about to save them looks nothing at all like they think it ought to look. Nevertheless, here he is, Palm Sunday, entering triumphantly like the leader of a liberating army coming to save. All eyes are on him, and each beholder longs to be saved. The palm leaves looked like they were about peace, but they were also about defiance. The coins looked like they were decorated by culture, but they really carried those same symbols of peace and Defiance. Jesus looked like a king to them, but he didn't come to rule the state. Jesus was heralded as a savior, but he wasn't going to save them how they expected. For what will turn out to be the most important story contained within the Gospels, which are the most important story in history, we find symbolism and irony as thick as it gets. Jesus begins the week lauded as a king, and he'll end it in a grave. But the story won't quite end there. Things will change, and they'll keep changing as quickly as one can imagine for Jesus on Holy Week. Things changing fast, almost every day. That should sound familiar. In fact, there's plenty that sounds familiar here. So as there's uh, plenty of symbolism and irony to the way we are observing Holy Week this year, I've jokingly called what we're doing now e-worship, e-worship, streaming the feasible, feasible parts of our service out into the world. I've even more jokingly called it the e-passing of the peace. <laughs> That's not really theologically sound to pass the peace across cyberspace, hence the E. Uh, passing the peace is fundamentally about reconciling with your neighbor before giving an offering. It's not just saying hi. Uh, and I've included that with a little tongue-in-cheek humor anyway because it's such a big deal in our normal worship at Emmanuel on Sunday to include something like it, even small bit, Seemed like a good idea, but I've left a lot of certain things out. We don't have calls and responses. We don't have um, our regular hymns because 
you know, in our setting, hymns are sung in unison, and the way we do it is important to us. If, if music was a little different, if it was more of the, you know, the emotive style where the band is, I don't want to say entertaining, but the band is really carrying most of the music for the assembly, then, you know, that might translate um, a little bit better to this um, venue, this style. Uh, however, as we go throughout this week, it's going to become even more noticeable that there are aspects of public Christian worship that I don't think are appropriate to be streamed. I don't believe in the possibility, for example, of uh, streamed or virtual remote communion. So that'll come up Monday, Thursday. That's the, that's the holiday in which Jesus instituted communion. So to not have communion on Monday, Thursday, it stands out. But I simply don't think it's theologically sound to do it any other way. Uh, likewise, you know, we don't wash feet on Monday, Thursday. Some churches do. I wouldn't pretend to do that for a video stream. I'm not going to pantomime stripping the altar on Good Friday. I'm not inclined to pretend that I got up at sunrise to do two different streams uh, on Easter morning like we normally have two services. You know, all that stuff is important. It's meaningful. It's big traditional stuff. I'm, I'm not laughing at, the, the, at those traditions. I'm laughing at the idea of streaming them because uh, we won't. This year will, it'll be, it'll give you a sense of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. What we lack this year will hopefully make us appreciate more next year when we've got it back. But we will have something this year, something in the same shape, the same order, the same story, the same images. You know, you don't walk on palm leaves this morning, but I keep holding them up so you know what Sunday it is. Uh, on Thursday and Friday, like I said uh, up top, if, um, if you're hearing this without the announcements, Thursday and Friday I will stream something, probably just a reading and a reflection, but we'll honor those two of the three big days. We'll find parallels all over the place. Again, this isn't a real palm leaf, but it makes you think of palms. Our worship won't actually be a gathering our confessions won't actually be corporate. Our sending out into the world will leave us right there in our living rooms and in our offices, responsibly at home. The palms on the coins back in Jesus' day weren't palms at all, but they carried some of that weight, some of the symbolism of what those palms meant to those people, a safe way to proclaim their subversive beliefs. And we're such a far cry from them in context and culture, from, them to, from then to now. But some of these things just keep popping up. I mean, check out these parallels between Palm Sunday and our situation today. We're going to stay home and worship God. We're going to worship God in our own homes. I, I will help guide our personal at-home worship in this way. But we're going to stay home in order to stay safe 
as we proclaim our subversive beliefs. What a strange parallel. You know, because the threats that we are going to stay safe from are so different, of course. The powers and institutions which we subvert are different as well. It's not like there's an empire weighing down on us. Still subversive today as they were back then. In, um, and of course that we proclaim the one God while denying all others, but also subversive to most human expectations in that our God is not one to exercise violence and oppression for the sake of getting God's own way. But rather, our God is subversive in itself, in God's self. God becomes humble in order to save. God will ride a donkey. God will endure derision, even betrayal, humility, and crucifixion. We're subversive in our beliefs in that we Christians, on our best days, don't fear death. We don't worry about tomorrow. We have no regrets to speak of if we honor the gospel promises. Now on our worst days, on our worst days, of course, we will still fear and worry and be anxious, but those promises comfort us nevertheless. The world says, worry. God says, be still. Holy Week is a, a story in which things change so quickly almost every day. That parallel we already saw to today. Holy Week is a, it's a tragedy, a story of senseless death. The whole human race is living through a story of senseless death right now. But we know how the gospel story ends. We've heard it a thousand times. We're going to share it a thousand more times. Death will come. Of course it will. It comes for each of us in due time. But that's not how this story ends. These substitutes we're using, the images we imitate for the sake of making a statement of honoring God in a difficult time, the isolation measures we're taking, the being sent out into the world and, but somehow sent back into your own home, the time spent in the grave, Jesus' time in this story, our time in our story, when our time comes. None of these things will last. They will all fall away and someday be distant memories. This here, e-worship, this isn't how the story ends. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio in my sermons does not always come with proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my own seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study, and I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast Sermon Brainwave fairly often. Some credit is due to at least one of those other sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well.
Take care of yourself and each other. Be responsible. And have a great rest of the week. Thanks.